9. The milk of a maiden, and was forged by the primeval smith, Ilmarinen, to be the bane of warlike men, is communicated by Wainamoinen to an old magician. The wizard then solemnly curses the iron, as a living thing, and invokes the aid of the supreme god Yuko, thus bringing together in one prayer the extremes of early religion. Then the hero is healed, and gives thanks to the creator, in whose hands is the end of a matter. Returning to Kalevala, Wainamoinen sends Ilmarinen to Pojola to make the sampo, a mill for corn one day, for salt the next, for money the next. The fatal treasure is concealed by Lautri, and is obviously to play the part of the fairy horde in the Nibelungen Lied, with the eleventh canto a new hero, Ati, or Lemminkainen, and a new cycle of adventures, is abruptly introduced. Lemminkainen is a profligate wanderer, with as many loves as Hercules. The fact that he is regarded as a form of the sea god makes it strange that his most noted achievement, the seduction of the whole female population of his island, should correspond with a like feat of Krishna's. 16,100, says the Vishnu Purana, was the number of the maidens, and into so many forms did the son of Madhu multiply himself, so that every one of the damsels thought that he had wedded her in her single person. Krishna is the Sunday of course, and the maidens are the dewdrops. It is to be hoped that Lemminkainen's connection with seawater may save him from the solar hypothesis. His first regular marriage is unhappy, and he is slain in trying to capture a bride from the people of Pojola. The black waters of the river of forgetfulness sweep him away, and his calm, which he left with his mother, bursts out bleeding a frequent incident in Russian and other fairy tales. In many household tales, the hero, before setting out on a journey, erects a stick which will fall down when he is in distress, or death. The natives of Australia use this form of divination in actual practice, tying round the stick some of the hair of the person whose fate is to be ascertained. Then, like Demeter seeking Persephone, the mother questions all the beings of the world, and their answers show a wonderful poetic sympathy with the silent life of nature. The moon said, I have sorrows enough of my own, without thinking of thy child, my lot is hard. My days are evil. I am born to wander companionless in the night, to shine in the season of frost, to watch through the endless winter, to fade when summer comes as king. The sun is kinder, and reveals the place of the hero's body. The mother collects the scattered limbs. The birds bring healing palm from the heights of heaven, and after a hymn to the goddess of man's blood, Lemminkainen is made sound and well, as the scattered fragments of no more a man were united by the spell of Medea like those of Osiris by Isis, or of the fair countess by the demon blacksmith in the Russian Mirkin, or of the carried hero mentioned by Mr. McLennan, or of the ox in the South African household tale. With the 16th canto we return to Wainamoinen, who, like all epic heroes, visits the place of the dead, Twonla. The maidens who play the part of Karen are with difficulty induced to ferry over a man bearing no mark of death by fire or sword or water. Once among the dead, Wainamoinen refuses being wiser than Psyche or Persephone to taste of drink. This to boy is found in Japanese, Melanesian, and Red Indian accounts of the homes of the dead. Thus the hero is able to return and behold the stars. Arrived in the upper world, he warns men to beware of perverting innocence, of leading astray the pure of heart. They that do these things shall be punished eternally in the depths of Tuoni. There is a place prepared for evildoers, a bed of stones burning. Rocks of fire, worms and serpents. This speech throws but little light on the question of how far a doctrine of rewards and punishments enters into primitive ideas of a future state. The Kalevala, 
as we possess it, is necessarily, though faintly, tinged with Christianity, and the peculiar vices which are here threatened with punishment are not those which would have been most likely to occur to the early heathen singers of this runout. Wainamoinen and Ilmarinen now go together to Pojola, but the fickle maiden of the land prefers the young forger of the Sampo to his elder and imperturbable companion, like a northern media, or like the master made in drive day sense tales from the Norse, or like the hero of the Algonquin tale and the Samoan ballad. She aids her alien lover to accomplish the tasks assigned to him. He plows with a plow of gold the adder close, or field of serpents. He bridles the wolf and the bear of the lower world, and catches the pike that swim in the waters of forgetfulness. After this, the parents cannot refuse their consent. The wedding feast is prepared, and all the world, except the seducent Lemminkainen, is bidden to the banquet. The narrative now brings in the ballads that are sung at a Finnish marriage. First. The son-in-law enters the house of the parents of the bride, saying, Peace abide with you in this illustrious hall. The mother answers, Peace be with you even in this lowly hut. Then Wainamoinen began to sing, and no man was so hardy as to clasp hands and contend with him in song. Next follow the songs of farewell, the mother telling the daughter of what she will have to endure in a strange home. Thy life was soft and delicate in my father's house. Milk and butter were already to my hand. Thou word as a flower of the field, as a strawberry of the wood, all care was left to the pines of the forest, all wailing to the wind in the woods of barren lands, but now thou goest to another home, to an alien mother, to doors that grate strangely on their hinges, my thoughts, the maiden replies, are as a dark night of autumn, as a cloudy day of winter, my heart is sadder than the autumn night, more weary than the winter day, the maid and the bridegroom are then lyrically instructed in their duties, the girl is to be long-suffering, the husband to try five years' gentle treatment before he cuts a willow one for his wife's correction. The bridal party sets out for home. A new feast is spread, and the bridegroom congratulated on the courage he must have shown in stealing a girl from a hostile tribe. While all is merry, the mischievous Lemminkainen sets out, an unbidden guest, for Pojola. On his way he encounters a serpent, which he slays by the song of serpent charming. In this mystic chain of verse the serpent is not addressed as the gentle reptile, god of southern peoples, but is spoken of with all hatred and loathing, black creeping thing of the lowlands, monster flecked with the colors of death, thou that hast on thy skin the stain of the sterile soil, get thee forth from the path of a hero, after slaying the serpent, Lemminkainen reaches Pojola, kills one of his hosts, and fixes his head on one of a thousand stakes for human skulls that stood about the house as they might round the hut of a Dyak in Borneo. He then flees to the Isle of Sari, whence he is driven for his heroic profligacy, and by the hatred of the only girl whom he has not wronged. This is a very pretty touch of human nature. He now meditates a new incursion into Pojola. The mother of Pojola is just worth noticing that the leadership assumed by this woman points to a state of society when the family was scarcely formed calls to her aid her child the frost. But the frost is put to shame by a hymn of the invaders. A song against the cold, the serpent was his foster mother. The serpent with her barren breasts, the wind of the north rocked his cradle, and the ice wine sang him to sleep. In the midst of the wild marshland, where the wells of the waters begin, it is a curious instance of the animism, the vivid power of personifying all the beings and forces of nature, which marks the Kalevala, that the cold speaks to Lemminkainen in human voice and seeks a reconciliation. At this part of the epic there is an obvious lacuna, 
The story goes to Colorvo, a luckless man, who serves as shepherd to Ilmarinen, thinking himself ill-treated by the heroic smith's wife. The shepherd changes his flock into bears and wolves, which devour their mistress. Then he returns to his own home, where he learns that his sister has been lost for many days, and is believed to be dead. Traveling in search of her he meets a girl, loves her, and all unwittingly commits an inexpiable offense. Then, says the Kalevala, came up the new dawn, and the maiden spoke, saying, What is thy race, bold young man, and who is thy father? Kalerva said, I am the wretched son of Kalerva, but tell me, what is thy race, and who is thy father? Then said the maiden, I am the wretched daughter of Kalerva. Ah, would God that I had died. Then might I have grown with the green grass, and blossomed with the flowers, and never known this sorrow. With this she sprang into the midst of the foaming waves, and found peace in Tuoni, and rest in the waters of forgetfulness. Then there was no word for Colorvo, but the bitter moan of the brother in the terrible Scotch ballad of the Bonnie Hind, and no rest but in death by his own sword, where grass grows never on his sister's tomb. The epic now draws to a close. Ilmarinen seeks a new wife in Puja and endeavors with Wainamoinen's help to recover the mystic Sampo. On the voyage, the Ranoia makes a harp out of the bones of a monstrous fish, so strange a harp that none may play it but himself. When he played, all four-footed things came about him, and the white birds dropped down like a storm of snow. The maidens of the sun and the moon paused in their weaving, and the golden thread fell from their hands. The ancient one of the sea water listened and the nymphs of the wells forgot to comb their loose locks with the golden combs. All men and maidens and little children wept, amid the silent joy of nature, nay, the great harper wept, and of his tears were pearls made. In the war with Pojola the heroes were victorious, but the sampler was broken in the fight, and lost in the sea, and that, perhaps, is why the sea is salt. Fragments were collected, however, and Lautry, Furious at the success of the heroes of Kalevala, sent against them a bear, destructive as the boar of Caligon. But Wainamoinen dispatched the monster, and the body was brought home with the bear dance, and the hymn of the bear. Oh, also, cry the singers, be not angry that we come near thee. The bear, the honey-footed bear, was born in lands between sun and moon, and he died not by men's hands, but of his own will. The Finnish savants are probably right who find here a trace of the beast worship which in many lands has placed the bear among the number of the stars. Propitiation of the bear is practiced by Red Indians, by the Ainos of Japan, and in the case of the native bear by Australians. The Red Indians have a myth to prove that the bear is immortal, does not die, but, after his apparent death, rises again in another body. There is no trace, however, that the Finns claimed, like the Danes, descent from the bear, the lapse a people of confused belief, worshipped him along with Thor, Christ, the Sunday and the Serpent, but another cult, an alien creed, is approaching Kalevala, there is no part of the epic more strange than the closing canto, which tells in the wildest language, and through the most exaggerated forms of savage imagination, the tale of the introduction of Christianity, Margita was a maiden, as pure as the dew island as holy as stars are that live without stain, as she fed her flocks, and listened to the singing of the golden cuckoo, a berry fell into her bosom, after many days she bore a child, and the people despised and rejected her, and she was thrust forth, and her babe was born in a stable, and cradled in the manger, who should baptize the babe, 
the god of the wilderness refused, and Wainamoinen would have had the young child slain. Then the infant rebuked the ancient demigod, who fled in anger to the sea, and with his magic song he built a magic bark, and he sat therein, and took the helm in his hand, the tide bore him out to sea, and he lifted his voice and sang, times go by, and suns shall rise and set, and then shall men have need of me, and shall look for the promise of my coming that I may make a new sampo, and a new harp, and bring back sunlight and moonshine, and the joy that is banished from the world. Then he crossed the waters, and gained the limits of the sea, and the lower spaces of the sky. Here the strange poem ends at its strangest moment, with the cry, which must have been uttered so often, but is heard here alone, of a people reluctantly deserting the gods that it has fashioned in its own likeness, for a faith that has not sprung from its needs or fears, yet it cherishes the hope that this tyranny shall pass over, they are gods, and behold they shall die, and the waves be upon them at last as the Kalevala, and as all relics of folklore, all American and ballads prove, the lower mythology the elemental beliefs of the people do survive beneath a thin covering of Christian conformity, there are, in fact, in religion, as in society, two worlds, of which the one does not know how the other lives, the class whose literature we inherit, under whose institutions we live, at whose shrines we worship, has changed as outworn raiment its manners, its gods, its laws, has looked before and after, has hoped and forgotten, has advanced from the wilder and grosser to the purest faith, beneath the progressive class, and beneath the waves of this troublesome world, there exists an order whose primitive form of human life has been far less changeful, a class which has put on a mere semblance of new faiths, while half-consciously retaining the remains of immemorial cults, obviously, as Amphorion has pointed out in the case of the modern Greeks. The life of such folk contains no element of progress, admits no break in continuity. Conquering armies pass and leave them still reaping the harvest of field and river, religions appear, and they are baptized by thousands. But the lower beliefs and dreads that the progressive class has outgrown remain unchanged. Thus, to take the instance of modern Greece, the high gods of the divine race of Achilles and Agamemnon are forgotten, but the descendants of the Penisti, the villains of Thessaly, still dread the beings of the popular creed, the Nereids, the Cyclopes, and the Lamia. The last lesson we would attempt to gather from the Kalevala is this, that a comparison of the thoroughly popular beliefs of all countries, the beliefs cherished by the non-literary classes whose ballads and fairy tales have only recently been collected, would probably reveal a general identity, concealed by diversity of name, among the lesser people of the skies, the elves, fairies, Cyclopes, Giants, Nereids, Brownies, Lamiae, it could then be shown that some of these spirits survive among the lower beings of the mythology of what the Germans call a culture folk like the Greeks or Romans. It could also be proved that much of the narrative element in the classic epics is to be found in a popular or childish form in primitive fairy tales. The question would then come to be, have the higher mythologies been developed, by artistic poets? out of the materials of a race which remain comparatively untouched by culture, or are the lower spirits, and the more simple and puerile forms of myth, degradations of the inventions of a cultivated class, the divining rod, there is something remarkable, and not flattering to human sagacity, in the periodical resurrection of superstitions, houses, for example, go on being haunted in country districts, and no educated man notices the circumstance. Then comes a case like that of the drummer of Tedworth, 
or the Cock Lane Ghost, and society is deeply moved, philosophers plunge into controversy, and he who grubs among the dusty tracks of the past finds a world of fugitive literature on forgotten bogies, chairs move untouched by human hands, and tables walk about in lonely castles of Savoy, and no one marks them, till a day comes when the furniture of some American cottage is similarly afflicted, and then a shoddy new religion is based on the phenomenon, the latest revival among old beliefs is faith in the divining rod, our liberal shepherds give it a shorter name, and so do our conservative peasants, calling the rod of Jacob the twig, to work the twig is rural English for the craft of Dooster's evil in the antiquary, and perhaps from this comes our slangy expression to twig, or divine, the hidden meaning of another, recent correspondence in the newspapers has proved that, Whatever may be the truth about the twig, belief in its powers is still very prevalent. Respectable people are not ashamed to bear sign witness of its miraculous powers of detecting springs of water and secret mines. It is habitually used by the miners in the Mendites, as Mr. Woodward found ten years ago, and forked hazel divining rods from the Mendites are a recognized part of ethnological collections. There are two ways of investigating the facts or fancies about the rod. One is to examine it in its actual operation a task of considerable labor, which will doubtless be undertaken by the Society for Psychical Research, the other, and easier, way is to study the appearances of the divining wand in history, and that is what we propose to do in this article. When a superstition or belief is widely spread in Europe, as the faith in the divining rod certainly is in Germany rods are hidden under babies' clothes when they are baptized. We naturally expect to find traces of it in ancient times and among savages all over the modern world. We have already examined, in the bull roar, a very similar example. We saw that there is a magical instrument a small fish-shaped piece of thin flat wood tied to a fawn which, when whirled in the air, produces a strange noise, a compound of roar and buzz. This instrument is sacred among the natives of Australia, where it is used to call together the men and to frighten away the women from the religious mysteries of the males. The same instrument is employed for similar purposes in New Mexico, and in South Africa and New Zealand parts of the world very widely distant from each other, and inhabited by very diverse races. It has also been lately discovered that the Greeks used this toy, which they called Greek, in the mysteries of Dionysus, and possibly it may be identical with the mystic of Anusiaki Virgil, Georgics, I-166. The conclusion drawn by the ethnologist is that this object, called Tarndun by the Australians, is a very early savage invention, probably discovered and applied to religious purposes in various separate centers, and retained from the age of savagery in the mystic rites of Greeks and perhaps of Romans. Well, do we find anything analogous in the case of the divining rod? Future researches may increase our knowledge, but at present little or nothing is known of the divining rod in classical ages and not very much though that little is significant among uncivilized races. It is true that in all countries rods or wands, the Latin Virga, have a magical power. Virgil obtained his medieval repute as a wizard because his name was erroneously connected with Virgula, the magic wand. But we do not actually know that the ancient wand of the enchantress Sirisa, in Homer, or the wand of Hermes, was used, like the divining rod, to indicate the whereabouts of hidden wealth or water. In the Homeric hymn to Hermes line 529, Apollo thus describes the Caduceus, or wand of Hermes, thereafter will I give thee a lovely wand of wealth and riches, a golden wand with three leaves, which shall keep thee ever unharmed, 
In later art this wand, or caduceus, is usually entwined with serpents, but on one vase, at least, the wand of Hermes is simply the forked twig of our rustic miners and water finders. The same form is found on an engraved Etruscan mirror. Now, was a wand of this form used in classical times to discover hidden objects of value? That wands were used by Scythians and Germans in various methods of casting lots is certain, but that is not the same thing as the working of the twig. Cicero speaks of a fabled wand by which wealth can be procured, but he says nothing of the method of its use, and possibly was only thinking of the rod of Hermes, as described in the Hoveric hymn already quoted. There was a Roman play, by Varro, called Virgula Divina, but it is lost, and throws no light on the subject. A passage usually quoted from Seneca has no more to do with the divining rod than with the telephone. Pliny is a writer extremely fond of marvels, yet when he describes the various modes of finding wells of water, he says nothing about the divining wand. The isolated texts from scripture which are usually referred to clearly indicate wands of a different sort. If we accept Hosea IV. 12. The passage used as motto by the author of Lettre qui découvrent le Lucien de Philosophe sur le Baguette 1696. This text is translated in our Bible. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declareth unto them. Now, we have here no reference to the search for wells and minerals, but to a form of divination for which the modern twig has ceased to be applied. In rural England people use the one to find water, but not to give advice or to detect thieves or murderers, but, as we shall see, the rod has been very much used for these purposes within the last three centuries. This brings us to the moral powers of the twig, and here we find some assistance in our inquiry from the practices of uncivilized races. In 1719 John Bell was traveling across Asia, he fell in with a Russian merchant, who told him of a custom common among the Mongols. The Russian had lost certain pieces of cloth, which were stolen out of his tent. The coup de Lama ordered the proper steps to be taken to find out the thief. One of the Lamas took a bench with four feet, and after turning it in several directions, at last it pointed directly to the tent where the stolen goods were concealed. The Lama now mounted across the bench, and soon carried it, or, as was commonly believed, it carried him, to the very tent, where he ordered the damask to be produced. The demand was directly complied with for it is vain in such cases to offer any excuse. 184a here we have not a wand, indeed, but a wooden object which turned in the direction, not of water or minerals, but of human guilt. A better instance is given by the ref. H. Rowley, in his account of the Moganja. 184b a thief had stolen some corn, the medicine man, or sorcerer, produced two sticks, which he gave to four young men, to holding each stick. The medicine man danced and sang a magical incantation, while a zebra tail and a rattle were shaken over the holders of the sticks. After a while, the men with the sticks had spasmodic twitchings of the arms and legs, these increased nearly to convulsions. According to the native idea, it was the sticks which were possessed primarily, and threw them the men, who could hardly hold them. The sticks whirled and dragged the men round and round like mad, through bush and thorny shrub, and over every obstacle. Nothing stopped them, their bodies were torn and bleeding. At last they came back to the assembly, whirled round again, and rushed down the path to fall panting and exhausted in the head of one of the chief's wives. The sticks, rolling to her very feet, denounced her as a thief. She denied it, but the medicine man answered, The spirit has declared her guilty, the spirit never lies. 
The woman, however, was acquitted, after a proxy trial by ordeal, a cock, used as her proxy, through the mwadi, or ordeal poison. Here the points to be noted are, first, the violent movement of the sticks, which the men could hardly hold, next, the physical agitation of the men. The former point is illustrated by the confession of a civil engineer writing in the Times. This gentleman had seen the rod successfully used for water, he was asked to try it himself, and he determined that it should not twist in his hands if an ocean rolled under his feet. Twist it did, however, in spite of all his efforts to hold it, when he came above a concealed spring. Another example is quoted in the Quarterly Review, Volume XXII, page 374. A narrator, in whom the editor had implicit confidence, mentions how, when a lady held the twig just over a hidden well, the twig turned so quick as to snap, breaking near her fingers. There seems to be no indiscretion in saying, as the statement has often been printed before, that the lady spoken of in the quarterly review was Lady Milbanke, mother of the wife of Byron. Dr. Hutton, the geologist, is quoted as a witness of her success in the search for water with the divining rod. He says that, in an experiment at Woolwich, the twigs twisted themselves off below her fingers, which were considerably indented by so forcibly holding the rods between them. Next, the violent excitement of the four young men of the Moganja is paralleled by the physical experience of the lady quoted in the quarterly review. A degree of agitation was visible in her face when she first made the experiment, she says this agitation was great when she began to practice the art, or whatever we are to call it. Again, in Lettre qui découvrent le Lucie on page 93, we read that Jack Seymour who discovered the Lyon murderer in 1692 southeast sent out emu feels greatly agitated when he comes on that of which he is in search. On page 97 of the same volume, the body of the man who holds the divining rod is described as violently agitated. When Seymour entered the room where the murder, to be described later, was committed, his pulse rose as if he were in a burning fever and the one turned rapidly in his hands Letra, page 107. But the most singular parallel to the performance of the African wizard must be quoted from a curious pamphlet already referred to, a translation of the old French verge D. Jacob, written, annotated, and published by a Mr. Thomas Welton. Mr. Welton seems to have been a believer in mesmerism, animal magnetism, and similar doctrines. But the coincidence of his story with that of the African sorcerer is nonetheless remarkable. It is a coincidence which must almost certainly be undesigned. Mr. Welton's wife was what modern occult philosophers call a sensitive. In 1851, he wished her to try an experiment with the rod in a garden, and sent a maid servant to bring a certain stick that stood behind the parlor door. In great terror she brought it to the garden, her hand firmly clutched on the stick, nor could she let it go. The stick was given to Mrs. Welton, and it drew her with very considerable force to nearly the center of the garden, to a bed of poppies, where she stopped. Here water was found, and the gardener, who had given up his lease as there was no well in the garden, had the lease renewed. We have thus evidence to show and much more might be adduced that the belief in the divining rod, or in analogous instruments, is not confined to the European races, the superstition, or whatever we are to call it produces the same effects of physical agitation, and the use of the rod is accompanied with similar phenomena among Mongols, English people, Frenchmen, and the natives of Central Africa. The same coincidences are found in almost all superstitious practices, 
and in the effects of these practices on believers, the Chinese use a form of planchette, which is half the divining rod a branch of the peach tree, and spiritualism is more than three quarters of the religion of most savage tribes, a Maori seance being more impressive than anything the civilized sludge can offer his credulous patrons. From these facts different people draw different inferences. Believers say that the wide distribution of their favorite mysteries is a proof that there is something in them. The incredulous look on our modern twigs and turning tables and ghost stories as mere survivals from the stage of savage culture, or want of culture, when the fancy of half-starved man was active and his reason uncritical. The great authority for the modern history of the divining rod is a work published by Anne Chevroy, in Paris, in 1854. And Chevroy, probably with truth, regarded the one as much on a par with the turning tables, which, in 1854, attracted a good deal of attention. He studied the topic historically, and his book, with a few accessible French tracts and letters of the 17th century, must here be our guide. A good deal of M. Chevroy's learning, it should be said, is reproduced in Mr. Baring Gould's Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. But the French author is much more exhaustive in his treatment of the topic, and Chevroy could find no earlier book on the twig than the testament du frere Basil Valenin, a holy man who flourished the twig about 1413, but whose treatise is possibly apocryphal. According to Basil Valenin, the twig was regarded with awe by ignorant laboring men, which is still true. Paracelsus, though he has a reputation for magical daring, thought the use of the twig uncertain and unlawful, and Agricola. In his Dere Metallica 1546 expresses a good deal of skepticism about the use of the rod in mining. A traveler of 1554 found that the one was not used and this seems to have surprised him in the mines of Macedonia. Most of the writers of the 16th century accounted for the turning of the rod by sympathy, which was then as favorite an explanation of everything as evolution is today. In 1630 the Baron de Beausoleil of Bohemia his name sounds rather Bohemian came to France with his wife, and made much use of the rod in the search for water and minerals. The Baroness wrote a little volume on the subject, afterwards reprinted in a great storehouse of this lore. Le Physicocult, of Valemont, Kircher, a Jesuit, made experiments which came to nothing, but Gaspard Schott, a learned writer cautiously declined to say that the devil was always at the bottom of it when the rod turned successfully. The problem of the rod was placed before our own Royal Society by Boyle, in 1666. But the Society was not more successful here than in dealing with the philosophical difficulty proposed by Charles I.I. In 1679 de Saint remained, deserting the old hypothesis of secret sympathies, explained the motion of the rod supposing it to move by the action of corpuscules. From this time the question became the playing ground of the Cartesian and other philosophers. The struggle was between theories of atoms, magnetism, corpuscules, electric effluvia, and so forth, on one side, and the immediate action of devils or of conscious imposture, on the other, the controversy, comparatively simple as long as the rod only indicated hidden water or minimum, 